Hello and welcome back to Worst Church Ever, the progressive Christian podcast that has relocated to the basement now that school's out for the summer. And even though we don't play golf, we'd hack around with Alice Cooper if we had the chance. Today, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 22, and we said in the last episode on Genesis 21 that that particular chapter ended with a nod toward what was coming. That chapter, if you recall from last episode, was about the banishment of Ishmael and Hagar, and unlike Hagar's first banishment, this time she is not brought back into the fold, nor is her son, who also happens to be the son of Abraham. This time, we have something similar going on with the son Abraham actually cares about. His name, of course, is Isaac. So chapter 22 begins sometime later, sometime after the banishment of Hagar and Ishmael. And those are actually the first uh, few words of the text. It begins sometime later, and then we have God tested Abraham. As if what had come before wasn't a test. Apparently it wasn't. If you go back and listen to the last episode, episode 14, Abraham doesn't really seem that vexed about having to banish his son. Now, there are all kinds of reasons for that, some of which are in the text, some of which we can speculate about. But now God is testing Abraham, according to chapter 22. Sending off Ishmael, no big deal. Give him some wine or give him some water in and some pieces of bread, or really just one piece of bread, according to the text, and God will take care, God will take care, God will take care of you, of you. But sometime later, God tested Abraham. Now, let's stop and think about this. Let's really, really think about this. Why would God need to test Abraham? Why would God need to test anyone? Doesn't God already know whatever it is God needs to know? Now, if you're a theist and don't believe that God's omnipotent, that's perfectly fine. There are many Christian theologies you'd be comfortable in. But if part of your belief system is that God must be omnipotent, you're in a little trouble here. And this isn't the first time we've talked about that. The idea that God had to come down and check out Sodom and Gomorrah for God's self was one example right from the text. As for systematic theologies, well, the fundamental trope that God cannot be in the presence of sin seems also to limit God's ability. We talked about this in episode two, which was called Every New Beginning Part Two, The Deep, Deep Magic. So chapter 22 begins, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied he being Abraham. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Chapter, verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. We'll stop here for a moment at the end of verse 5. If you don't know how this story ends, there are spoilers ahead. Does Abraham know, and here's the question, does Abraham know all along that God is going to call this whole thing off? After all, he does tell his servants, we, meaning he and Isaac, will worship and then we, he and Isaac, We'll come back to you. Is Abraham humoring God? 
Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, another question. Is Abraham being ironically prophetic, or does he literally believe God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice in Isaac's place? Neither scenario is good. Neither scenario portrays a healthy relationship between God and Abraham, or for that matter, between God and humanity. Or maybe Abraham thinks that if he doesn't, at the very least, go through the motions, God will take Isaac from him anyway. I mean, Lot lost his wife because she couldn't help but look back at her trauma. Maybe Abraham's scared. Either way, Elohim in this text, the word for God, does not come off as the moral center of the universe, but more like a petty local hill god. Speaking of trauma, imagine being Isaac. Here's verse 9. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now, people who want to make the Bible into some perfect theological narrative have to pretend to be excited about what happens next. Back to the text. But the angel of the Lord, and there it's Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, or the messenger of Yahweh. But the angel of Yahweh called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. See, isn't God gracious? God never meant it. It was just a test. It was only a test. We now return you to your regularly scheduled religious programming. Sorry, no. God may provide the ram, but did God have to scar a child to make some kind of point? Even though the child is physically spared, this is nothing short of terrorism. Calling it child abuse is almost letting the story off the hook. M. Scott Peck defines evil this way, quote, Evil is the use of power to destroy the spiritual growth of others for the purpose of defending and preserving the integrity of our own sick selves, unquote. That's from his book, The People of the Lie, The Hope for Human Healing, for The Hope for Healing Human Evil, which was published in 1983. Well, I wonder what Isaac's spiritual or emotional or mental or physical growth was like after this encounter. The body, as we know, keeps the score. I'm reminded, too, of the definition of violence we talked about with reference to circumcision, something else that was done to Isaac that Isaac had no say in. In that discussion, Hector of Oyos defines violence as the act of modifying and or inflicting pain upon the human body in order to express or impose power differentials. Is the binding of Isaac simply a repetition of the motif of circumcision? Is it some kind of euphemism for that theme? Or, keeping with our theme of locating cycles of trauma in these stories, is it possible that Abraham is willing to mutilate his son at God's command because he's already been conditioned to do so? The binding of Isaac is certainly violent, and on Peck's definition, it's essentially evil. 
The language of Genesis 17, where the circumcision, circumcision is first required, is particularly telling. God requires a mark in the flesh of God's people as a reminder to them about who owns their ass. Every time you copulate, every time you piss, every time you start to think you have some kind of meaningful agency, I want you to think of me. That's problematic. But if Abraham is all in on this idea of marking the flesh as a sign of faithful covenant, perhaps the move to Mount Moriah isn't as big and despairing a deal for him as we've made it out to be. And here I picture the patriarch as a proto-Ivan Drago. If he dies, he dies, and so on. Who knows? Not me. And while these things get talked about in academic journals and in seminaries, none of this is showing up in Veggie Tales or a Sunday sermon or, I'd venture to guess, even an adult Bible study anytime soon. And that's a shame. Back in the story, God stops Abraham and praises him, saying, Now I know that you fear God because you haven't withheld your son, even your only son, from me. If you want this story to be a meaningful test of faith, then you can't say God's omnipotent. Even so, if this thing really happened, none of it's okay. Well, sure you might say, but it's an allegory. Isaac represents the punishment we all deserve, and the ram in the thicket is a type of Christ, a God-given scapegoat, something God can pour God's wrath on, or something God can consume, or something that, through some sort of more powerful-than-God proto-magic, allows God to go back to loving us. But none of that really checks out. First of all, why does an omnipotent, perfect God need any kind of sacrifice? Second, if Isaac represents humanity and humanity is sinful, how effective a sacrifice can Isaac really be? No, you might say it's just an allegory. It's an allegory. Or maybe you pivot and say things like God wanted to show Abraham that there truly was nothing Abraham loved more than God. See, look, it's edifying. Edifying for who? Certainly not edifying for Abraham, and certainly not edifying for Isaac. This is evil done upon Isaac. This is trauma enforced upon Isaac, um, intruding on the narrative of Isaac's life and of his development. And quite frankly, if God really did do this, God is needlessly visiting trauma upon Abraham. If we concede that the story really happened, it ranks as one of God's shittier moves. If we say the story is here to teach us some sort of lesson, we also have to grant that said lesson isn't very clear. And even worse, the misunderstanding or misuse of this story has perpetuated all kinds of terrible, abusive ideas about God. Verses 15 through 18 find God again asserting the covenant with Abraham. And while the question of a conditional or unconditional covenant hasn't been clearly answered so far in the Abraham cycle of stories, here, at the very least, the text has God specifically saying, because you have done this and not withheld your son, I will make you the father of multitudes. And so there is this ongoing question. Is the covenant going to be fulfilled and carried forth by God regardless of humankind's bad actions, regardless of whether or not Abraham or his offspring stumble and stray from the path, or if they willingly leave the path? Or or is it is it conditional? Does it require, to some degree or another, their fidelity, their faithfulness, their checking off the right boxes and which boxes are those and which parameters are, are, are marking them as within the covenant, covenant and which bridges are too far, right? Now, it could be that 
the various tellings of the giving of a covenant in Abraham's cycle might reflect different ancient parallel traditions, but read together, the vibe surrounding God's commitment to this whole project is, quite frankly, capricious. Here's what I think. I think these stories increasingly reveal an ancient insight, an ancient wisdom about the nature of human family systems and cycles of trauma. Sure, their societies were different than ours. Their families didn't look exactly like ours. Their values and their ethics and their beliefs were different, but they had a real and true insight on the way families have a knack for perpetuating their own kinds of trauma. I think the readers and redactors of these texts are searching for answers, and either consciously or subconsciously, they're crafting a masterfully insightful psychological work. We might even say it's a meta-narrative. Look, the Bible is saying, look at how far trauma pushes some people. Look what they do in God's name. Look at the words they put in God's mouth. Look at the priorities and the actions they attribute to God. Look at your young men and women fighting. Look at your people crying. Look at your people dying the way they've always done before. The cycle of human trauma started at the very, very beginning, and our bodies and minds carry that circuit forward in every generation. It turns out you don't need to believe in Eden or the fruit to know that we're all downstream of trauma, of evil we didn't commit but can't help but perpetuate. We can't help it not because our nature is fallen in some quasi-mystical, shitty theological way, but because our bodies and our brains keep the score, whether we want them to or not. In the Christian story, God steps into this mix as the Christ, collapsing the probability waves and committing God's self to the human project in very literal terms. In Christ, God experiences trauma. It's one of the reasons so many Christian thinkers and traditions put so much emphasis on the birth of God in time, what theologians call the Incarnation. Birth is, of course, the original human trauma, the one traumatic event we all experience on relatively similar terms. In Christ, God binds God's self to the experience of trauma, and in the crucifixion, we might even say that God becomes trauma. The resurrection, then, is a symbol of co-working with God through trauma. And please hear me, I'm not saying that's all the resurrection is, but if it were only that, it would be no less of a miracle. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you're doing well. Special thanks to new listeners who are popping up from different parts of the world. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. And of course, to our regular listeners, thank you so very much for your continuing support and for your encouragement. Take care and we'll see you soon.